The Harrison Narcotics Act, passed in 1914, was the United States' first federal drug policy. The act restricted the manufacture and sale of marijuana, cocaine, heroin, and morphine. The act was also aggressively enforced and became the beginning of the war on drugs in America. Johan Hari, the New York Times best-selling author of Chasing the Scream, talked with us about the war on drugs, how it started, and why it isn't working today. In the first of this three-part series, Mr. Hari talks about what our world was like when drugs were legal and part of the daily lives of Americans with products like Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup that contained a mild opiate or cocoa tea, which had cocaine as its primary ingredient. Interestingly enough, cocoa tea was enjoyed by the Pope as well as Queen Victoria. And now please enjoy part one of our three-part series with author Johan Hari. Welcome to the Cover Two Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover Two Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover Two Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover Two podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Almost 100 years after the start of the war on drugs, we all know the script. Treat users and addicts as criminals. Repress them. Shame them. Coerce them into stopping. This is the prevailing view in almost every country in the world. My guest today wrote that. He also has written numerous newspaper articles and appeared on television to argue that punishing and shaming drug users only makes them worse and creates a blizzard of other problems for society. He argues instead for a second strategy, legalize drugs, stage by stage, and use the money we currently spend on punishing addicts to fund compassionate care instead. So we're here today with Johan Hari, author of Chasing the Scream. So Johan, welcome. Oh, it's great to be with you, Greg. Thanks so much. Now, you have a personal story that led you to write about the war on drugs. So let's start there. Can you tell us about your personal experience growing up in London and how that led you to address this issue? Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot lately for several Reasons. I just came back from the U.S. Um, a long trip in the U.S. I spent a lot of my time in the United States, as you know. And the, I'm really worried about the direction that the debate about the opioid crisis is going in. Um, people on our side, people that I would normally agree with 95% of the time, I think have adopted a story through entirely through good intentions that I think is actually going to make this crisis much, much worse. And is, in fact, making this crisis much worse on the ground and will lead to a lot more people dying. 
and they're ignoring uh, or, or then they haven't been informed about the real solutions and the places that have actually genuinely overcome opioid crises. So I was thinking about that a lot in, in relation to my own story. I've actually just been seeing um, um, one of my nephews who, who, who grew up with a, a parent who, who had a very bad addiction problem. As, uh, you know, as I said before some interviews, that my, um, one of my earliest memories is of uh, trying to wake up one of my relatives and not being able to. And I was very young then, so I didn't understand why, but um, uh, we had a lot of addiction in my family, uh, several close members of my family, and um, which, some of which had actually originated in prescriptions, uh, not prescription opiates, uh, but some of which had, had initially manifested, I should say, is through, through addiction to prescription drugs. Um, Valium, in, in that case, was one of them. But, um, and, you know, when I started to write Chasing the Screen, which was, God, it was a long time ago now, about six years ago, a bit more actually. I, I, um, I'd obviously been thinking a lot about this, the experiences I'd had in my life and with my family <clears throat> and with other people that I loved. Um, and I, I kind of thought, when I start, sat down to write, I just wrote out a list of questions I wanted to answer in the book. Right? I knew we were, it was coming up to 100 years since drugs were first banned, and I thought, okay, what do I want to know? Right? And I, I, and I think the list was something like, you know, why did we go to war against drug users and drug addicts 100 years ago? Why do we continue when it seems to be failing so badly? Is anywhere doing it right? What are the alternatives? And what really causes drug use and drug addiction? And slightly arrogantly, I remember at the time saying to someone when I started writing the book, oh, this is going to be an easy one to write, right? I've been writing about this for years. I've lived through this with all these people. This is going to be easy, right? And actually, when I sat down to write, I realized I didn't know the answer to any of those questions. So I was just just going to say, it. you thought that you knew it, and, and then even at the very beginning, 100 years ago, as you outlined, the world was such a different place. We take all the restriction on drugs in the U.S. in particular for granted today, but the world was truly a very, very different place back then. Can you take us through that and kind of start there and maybe describe that a little bit for us? Yeah, I mean, this seems strange to say now, but of course, drugs were legal all over the world 100 years ago, a little bit over 100 years ago. Um, the most popular way, and this is going to be a really important part of when we discuss prescription opiates, the most popular way of consuming opiates was something called Mrs. Winslow's Soothing Syrup, which you would go and buy in your local pharmacy, and it would be a very, very mild opiate. Uh, that you would drink. The most popular way of consuming cocaine products was in something called coca tea, which was what it sounds like. It was a form of tea. But again, very, very mild. Uh, Queen Victoria loved coca tea. The Pope drank coca tea. Um, and uh, so these were, the, these were very widespread forms of, uh, of, of drugs. And one of the things that was fascinating to me in doing the research for Chasing the Scream was to see the, well, what happened when drugs were banned? Right now, there's a whole debate about why drugs were banned. And what's fascinating is what people assume, and I assume, is there must have been these really big problems. There must have been a huge addiction crisis. That must have been what driven it, or drove it. Uh, actually, reading all the debates about why drugs were banned, the Senate debates, the debate in the press, reading through the archives, one of the things that was striking is that stuff barely comes up. They're, they're, they're not concerned about people with addiction problems. They're not concerned about kids not using drugs. They literally don't even discuss those questions except in passing. The reason why drugs were banned was a, a kind of hysteria about, a racist hysteria about African Americans and Chinese Americans. Give you an example, an official, so there was this belief that, uh, so obviously at that time in the United States, we're talking 1913, 1914, um, there had been the, the, you know, the, the promise of liberation at the end of the Civil War and then that is 
strangled and destroyed. And you had in some isolated instances, um, uh, you know, African-Americans trying to resist in very direct ways, bravely. And this was presented as, oh, they've, they've become drug crazed, they've gone mad, they must be, you know, they're using cocaine, that's why they're behaving in this bizarre way. I mean, an official statement, I'm not going to say the word, but an official statement, for example, from the spokesman for the US government, um, talking about the idea that uh, African-Americans have been using cocaine, said, the cocaine N-word sure is hard to kill. So you have this context where drug were, uh, drug drug uh, uh, drugs are banned in the midst of this racist hysteria. There's this belief that African-Americans are using cocaine and going crazy. I, I tell the story of at the start of the book of how the founder of the war on drugs, Harry Anslinger, stalked and killed Billie Holiday, the great jazz singer. And this belief that Chinese-Americans had brought in uh, opiates and coca- uh, opiates and particularly heroin and were using it to like enslave white women and so on. I'm putting enslaved in a bit of commas. Um, so drugs are banned. And what's interesting is these milder opiates that used to be available disappear. What happens is there's this huge, suddenly the whole trade is taken over by armed criminal gangs. Uh, the, the moderate forms of the drugs, for reasons I can explain later if you like, disappear and only the hardest forms of the drug can be bought on the black market. Uh, so there's this, this and, and then there's a massive increase in deaths. One of the things that most moved me is this story that I there's this extraordinary man that I learned about, a man called Henry Smith Williams, who's a doctor in Los Angeles. And he was, when drugs were banned, he was super unsympathetic to addicts. He was a very distinguished scientist, um, a very, very popular scientist. He was one of the most distinguished scientists in the United States. And he um, he had you know, he'd written all these textbooks. He was really distinguished. And he had been treating people with addiction problems prior to the ban on drugs. And he was really unsympathetic. He basically said, look, it's better if they all just kill themselves and die. I mean, it was really quite extreme. And then he and then, then drugs were banned. And then he saw the effect on 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 um, on ordinary patients. And lots of them did, in fact, start to die. And the death rate massively increased after drugs were banned of, of, of people with addiction problems. And the people who had addiction problems became much poorer, partly because the price of drugs massively increased. And Henry Smith-Williams was really horrified by this, and he started to actually prescribe uh, legally, it, to prescribe uh, opiates to his patients. That was still legal, then there was a loophole in the law, so he was allowed to do that. And actually a lot of them then recovered, they got better, they were still in a state of addiction, it was far from ideal, but the death rate massively went down. And he was actually arrested, a lot of, it was the biggest mass arrest of doctors in the history of the United States. Doctors saw the effect of banning drugs. They saw it was killing their patients. So 17,000 of them, uh, so, so huge numbers of them started prescribing opiates legally, mm-hmm. and then 17,000 of them were mass arrested. So prohibition was abolished in 1933. Yeah. And so that was also the same time that they needed to do something with the old Federal Bureau of Prohibition. And so it exactly. morphed into something and else, didn't it? He to keep his department going. He wants his department to have a purpose. He doesn't want it to shut down. And so he really rebuilds a new purpose for this department. He's the first person to use the phrase war on drugs long before Nixon, long before Reagan. Um, And he really builds it around his two most intense personal hatreds. Now, I don't want to imply this is purely cynical. I think Harry Anslinger genuinely believed this. It's not that he just invented these reasons to keep the war on drugs. He invented the war on drugs. I think he, he built the war on drugs around the things he genuinely hated. So... He had, I'd say, two really intense hatreds. One was a really intense hatred of African-Americans and Latinos. I mean, he was so racist that he was regarded as extremely racist in the 1920s. I mean, he used the N-word so often in his own official memos 
his own senator said he should have to resign in the early 30s. Uh, but the other group he really hated, which is most relevant to the purposes of this conversation, is people with addiction problems. He, he had had a traumatic experience when he was a kid with someone who had an addiction problem, and he really hated and feared people with addiction. I think he also feared this in himself, who later actually used some of these drugs. Um, but he really feared this, and he, um, he, he, he said that uh, addicts were like lepers, they had to be put in separate colonies and never allowed to interact with anyone else. He compared them to typhoid Mary. He said that addiction was a contagion, a contagious disease that spread out from people with addiction problems. And he said that they had to be punished extremely severely. I opened, as I say, I opened the book with the story of what he did to Billy Holiday. Yeah. I think it tells you so much about uh, him, the early drug war and the drug war today. Yeah, you outlined that about how for personal and political gain, he basically ruined her life. I open the book with this moment, which seemed, might seem, when people first read it, like a strange place to begin a book about the drug war. In, in 1939, uh, Billie Holiday walked on stage in a hotel in Midtown Manhattan, and uh, she wasn't allowed to go through the front door. She had to go through the service elevator because she was African-American. And she got to the, the, the ballroom, and she sang a song for the first time. It was a, a song called Strange Fruit. Oh, she wasn't for the first time. It was uh, uh, early in her senior year. She sings a song called Strange Fruit which I, I'm guessing a lot of your listeners will know, it's a song about lynching. It imagines that the, 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 the bodies of lynched African-American men hanging from trees in the South are like the, are like the, the strange fruit of the South. Um, and, I mean, you've got to understand how shocking this is to have, you know, uh, an African-American woman standing in front of a white audience singing a song like that at that time. Her goddaughter Lorraine Feather told me, you know, like, this, is, this was exceptionally unusual. And this was and before she became famous. Yeah, it was kind of uh, as she was becoming famous. So she was fairly well known by then, but she wasn't as famous as she would later become. That night, she received a warning from Harry Anslinger, this man, the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. And it, and it says to her, effectively, stop singing this song. And it seems like a weird place because you think, well, what's, what's this got to do with the drug war? He had discovered that she was addicted to, to heroin. She, she was addicted to heroin for a very understandable reason. She had been monstrously raped when she was a little girl. Uh, when she was 10, she was horrendously raped. She was then, the guy who, who raped her was sent to prison for a year and she was punished for even longer. She was sent to a, a convent school because they basically said she had led him on uh, where this convent school tormented her, locked her in a room with dead bodies to punish her. I mean, it was monstrous. She ran away in the end to find her mother who was working in a brothel in, on uh, Roosevelt Island in, just off Manhattan. And um, she ended up working in inverted commas in this brothel alongside her, her mother. So being raped by strangers for money from when she was 14 years old. When the authorities found her in the brothel, they sent her to prison. So you get a sense of the trauma this woman must have been carrying, and she was she was trying to anesthetize this, this horrendous trauma with, you know, initially huge amounts of alcohol and later alcohol and, and heroin. And and but and this is this really helped the story of Bill Holiday helped me so much to think about the people I love who have addiction problems. Because what she did next was absolutely heroic. Billy Holiday basically said to, to Anslinger's men, screw you, I'm a I'm a citizen of the United States and I will sing my damn song. And she refused to stop singing Strange Fruit. And it was at that moment that Anslinger really resolved to destroy her. So he initially, he hated employing African-Americans, but you couldn't really send a white guy into Harlem to stalk Billie Holiday. It'd be kind of obvious. So he employed a guy called Jimmy Fletcher, who was what's called a bag man. He was like a, his job was to follow Billie Holiday around for, for several years. And one of the things that's amazing about the story is Billie Holiday was such an extraordinary person that Jimmy Fletcher fell in love with her. And his whole life, he felt really ashamed of what he did. 
he, he arrested her, he busted her, she's put on trial. She said the trial was called the United States versus Billie Holiday, and that's how it felt. She's sent to prison. She doesn't sing a word in prison. And when she gets out, the cruelest thing of all happens, which is her friend uh, Yolanda Bourbon, who's a, herself a wonderful jazz singer and still around, said to me, got, explained to me, she, to perform anywhere where alcohol was sold, you needed a, what's called a cabaret performance license in, in most cities, not all, um, particularly New York. And uh, he made sure, Anthony made sure that she didn't, as a convicted felon, she did not have, she didn't get a cabaret performance license. So Yolanda, her friend explained to me, you know, said to me, what's the cruelest thing you can do to a person? It's to take away the thing they love. This is what we do, of course, to addicts all over the United States, right? Sure. We, instead of helping them get back to a, a decent life, we put obstacles in their path. Of course, in that situation, Billie Holiday relapsed. Eventually, she, she collapses one day. She's taken to a hospital. Um, the hospital refuses to take her because she's an addict. <clears throat> she's then taken to another hospital, which finally agrees to admit her. And she said to one of her friends, Maylie Dufty, about the narcotics agents, they're going to kill me in there. Don't let them. They're going to kill me in there. And uh, she, she's taken in and she, her instincts were, were quite right. She was, uh, they come and they arrest her on her hospital bed, even though they know that a hospital had diagnosed her with quite advanced cancer, liver cancer. Um, they chain her to her hospital bed. I interviewed the last remaining person who'd been in that room, a man called Eugene Callender. They, they chain her to the hospital bed. They don't let her friends in to see her. She goes into withdrawal because they're not giving her any heroin. And uh, she, obviously, withdrawal when you're already sick with liver cancer is extremely dangerous. Her friend, Maylie, managed to insist that she was given um, methadone and she got a little bit better. Uh, and then Anstinger's men cut off the methadone and she died, I think, two days later. One of her friends uh, said that she looked like she had been violently wrenched from life. There had been protesters outside the hospital uh, with signs saying, let Lady Day live, because they knew what was happening. This was known at the time. And one of the things that really, the reason I said this helped me with my, my, my relatives is, you know, we tell one heroic story about people with addiction problems, which is they can stop using. That is heroic. It's really hard. They deserve a huge amount of credit. But Billie Holiday never stopped using. She was still a hero. She still did something incredible. She, she faced down the power of the United States government. And in fact, one of, you know, every day all over the world, people are still listening to Billie Holiday's songs and they are still feeling stronger. And one of the things, one of the things, conversations I had that most moved me in the, the book, and there were a lot of conversations for Chasing the Scream that really moved me, but one of the ones that I found most moving was uh, I asked her friend Yolanda Bavan, um, what would you say to Billie Holiday if you could speak to her now? And she told me that before she died, Billie Holiday was convinced that these people had just wiped her from the historical record. No one would remember her. And she said, Yolanda said to me, I would say to her, Billie, this morning I went into Whole Foods in Columbus Circle and they were playing your music. Nobody forgot you, baby. Wow. So Billie Holiday was a very important figure in your book. There's another equally important figure by the name of Arnold Rothstein. Tell us his story. So there are many tragedies caused by the war on drugs. And obviously the tragedies caused by what we do to people with addiction problems are very close to my heart. But actually, I don't think that's the biggest, that's an enormous tragedy, but it's not actually the biggest tragedy caused by the war on drugs. The biggest tragedy is something quite different. When you ban drugs, your listeners will have noticed they don't disappear. They're transferred from the people who used to control them, legal, licensed businesses, to armed criminal gangs. And this creates an enormous wave of violence. And it can seem a bit confusing to people at first about why that happens, but it's actually a very simple reason. If you imagine, if any of your listeners 
you know, if they're listening to this podcast while you're doing it, you can try it. I would recommend it. Go into a shop and try to steal, go into a liquor store and try to steal a bottle of vodka. If you do that and the store catches you, they'll call the cops. The cops will come and take you away. So that liquor store doesn't need to be violent. It doesn't need to be intimidating. It doesn't need to shoot you. They've got the power of the law to uphold their property rights. Okay. Now imagine uh, you're not trying to steal a bottle of vodka, but you're trying to steal a bag of cannabis if you're in one of the states where it's still banned or a bag of cocaine. Obviously, if that guy catches you, he can't call the cops. The cops will come and arrest him. He has to fight you. In fact, he doesn't want to be having a fight every day. So he's got to establish a reputation for being so frightening that no one will dare to take him on. If any of his, the only way he can settle, and not the only way, but the most common way that he can settle beefs with his rivals, in fact, how he will establish his place in that neighborhood to be selling you that drug is through violence. Milton Friedman, the Nobel Prize winning economist, calculated there are 10,000 additional murders every year in the United States as a direct result of that dynamic. You and I are speaking a few days after this uh, unbelievably terrible massacre in Las Vegas, yeah. in the Mandalay Bay. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, you know, and and uh, we should be talking about gun control and mental health and all the things we are talking about, but not in this case, but the single biggest driver of gun violence in the United States is this dynamic. The war on drugs creates a war for drugs. And if you want to know how much of that violence is caused by the fact that we ban them, just ask yourself, where are the violent alcohol dealers? Right? Does the head of Smirnoff go and shoot the head of cause in the face? Right? Does your local bar send kids to go and shoot up the next bar down? Of course not. Exactly that happened under alcohol prohibition. Exactly that. Um, we all know who Al Capone was. I bet no one listening to this knows the name of the head of Budweiser. The difference is that we legalized alcohol. Um, the, 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 uh, and, and, and this is catastrophic enough in the United States, but I spent a lot of time in, for example, Ciudad Juarez in northern Mexico and uh, Colombia and, um, you know, the supply route countries. I mean, more people have died in those supply route countries than have died in Syria. There may not be that much we can do about Syria. We can end most of the violence in Colombia and Mexico um, by doing what we did with alcohol. Now, that doesn't mean that legalized, you know, legalized drugs would be, you know, you're not going to have a crack aisle in CBS. No one wants that. Legalization means different things for different drugs. And I can talk about what that means if you like. But the, anyway, the reason I mention this is that Arnold Rothstein is one of the first manifestations of this. He's a, he's a gangster in, in Manhattan who was the first, per, he's the first kind of big drug dealer in the United States. He immediately spots when this stuff is banned, there's going to be a big business opportunity for us. And he really swoops in and until he's eventually murdered by a rival, um, thus, thus showing the whole pattern of what's going to happen with the, the war for drugs for the rest of the, the century until the present day. You describe how Anslinger's department actually uh, caused two crime waves. First, it created an army of gangsters, um, and that was through Arnold Rothstein's team initially, uh, to smuggle drugs into the country and to sell it to addicts. And second, by driving up the cost of drugs by somewhere around 1,000%, it forced addicts to commit crimes to afford the drugs. Seems like a yeah. lot of that went, uh, it, it went largely unnoticed, though, and I don't, I don't know how that's possible. Well, again, uh, well, it was noticed. Uh, it, was no, it, it, it wasn't unnoticed. I mean, it was really noticed, and people were quite... One of the things that was very striking to me is that early in the drug war, early in drug prohibition, people really understood this stuff. Um, it was actually very clear. It's actually that it was kind of, um, you know, uh, people's consciousness was hijacked with propaganda. And the people who were making these arguments were really the subject of state persecution. I mean, Harry 
Henry Smith Williams, that wonderful doctor I told you about, his brother was sent to prison. The Federal Bureau of Narcotics write to his employers and tell them that he's a drug dealer. I mean, just crazy, crazy stuff. So there, there's a real use of state repression. It kind of anticipates a lot of what happens in McCarthyism. This is really important, by the way, for understanding what's happening today with the, the opioid crisis. You, you mentioned the, you know, the massive increase in price. So there's lots of things going on in the opioid crisis and uh, have to talk about this is not the biggest factor. But one factor people really need to understand if they want to understand what's happening in the opioid crisis is there's a really dangerous and false myth that's being propagated. What people are being told is the reason why there's been a huge increase in heroin is because people start on the prescription opiates, but those hooks aren't enough for them, and therefore they go to heroin. It's not true. The reason this is happening is a different dynamic, which has been proven by many scientists. So partly it's about underlying distress, which I'm sure we'll get to. That's the biggest factor, and I want to talk about that, and there's a lot to be said about that in the opioid crisis. But the, um, another factor is something that you see here at this early in the drug war. Uh, it's something called the Iron Law of Prohibition, and it might sound a bit wonky, but it's actually a really important part of what's going on today. The best way to explain it is, day before alcohol is banned in the United States, the most popular drink by far, uh, drinks by far are beer and wine, just like today. Mm -hmm. Within a couple of weeks of the ban, you cannot get anywhere beer or wine. The most popular drinks are whiskey, moonshine, vodka. And you think, well, why would that be, right? Why would banning a drug change how people want to use that drug? It's, it's a very simple reason. If you imagine you and me had to smuggle, you know, enough alcohol for your local bar from the border in uh, Mexico or Canada to your to your street in Ohio. If we fill our wagon with beer, we're going to get drink for like 100 people. If we fill our wagon with whiskey, we're going to get drink for tens of thousands of people, right? Sure. Or at least thousands. Yep. <clears throat> when you ban a drug, there is suddenly a premium on getting the biggest possible kick into the smallest possible space. It's why uh, when you ban drugs, only the most potent forms become available. So we mentioned before the most popular ways of using opiates before drugs were banned were um, uh, was Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup. It was a syrup. It was like a drink. No one can get that. It doesn't exist anymore. Even, even no opiates could be used that way. It was very mild. Very quickly, the only drug you can get is heroin. Now, this is important for understanding what's happening at the moment because people are saying, well, the solution is to throw people off, you know, to cut people's prescriptions off, right? What happens is, if you're addicted to oxy or any of these other prescription opioids and and your doctor stops giving it to you 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 can either have an agonizing process in which you try to stop often with a lot of stigma and shame and potential criminal punishment um and you know good luck to you for trying to do that and some people are succeeding in that what's more common is people go to the street and they try to buy it but you can't buy prescription opiates except at an extremely high price because of the um because of this dynamic because of the iron law of prohibition what can you buy Heroin is actually quite cheap for exactly this reason. <clears throat> it's why a lot of people are transferring to heroin. Uh, it's a reason. There are other reasons I can get to, but it's, it's why a lot of people are transferring to heroin because it's the only av uh, available, affordable drug in, in the same category. There's a doctor in Oklahoma I interviewed called, you should talk to him for your podcast, he's a really interesting guy called Dr. Hal Voss, who's seen this exact dynamic play out. He sees his patients cut off from their legal opioid and they go and they're forced to buy something much, much worse. Not, not to mention, by the way, that also street heroin is, of course, because drug dealers, we can't send health inspectors to check what drug dealers, illegal drug dealers are doing. You end up, um, uh, you know, stepping it, on it's it. very contaminated. There's a lot, mm. a lot of the things that a lot of the fentanyl that's killing people and yeah. about to go to Canada, a lot of the fentanyl that's killing people 
is, is actually just fentanyl that's been cut into heroin. Yep. People buy it, don't want, often, not in every case, but in a lot of cases, don't want fentanyl. It's effectively a poisoning, um, it's effectively poisoning because, you know, they, they're, um, again, because of this iron law, law of prohibition and because illegal drugs are inherently shitty drugs because it's not a good product and it's not regulated. Thanks for joining us for this episode. Please tune in for part two of our three-part series, Chasing the Scream, where Johan Hari talks about the impact of legalizing heroin in Switzerland and the surprising result of an experiment that became known as Rat Park. This is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.